Instacart shoppers know groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock-hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart. Defending liberty is never easy, especially in times of crisis when freedom is so often traded away in search of security. Even during the pandemic, we at Spikes will continue to speak up for our principles. We will keep calling for more scrutiny of the authoritarian measures being wielded over us and for more debate on the best way forward. But to do that, we need your help. Spiked is free and it always will be because we want as many people as possible to read our articles and listen to our podcasts. To keep Spiked free, we rely on the generosity of our readers and listeners, particularly those who can give regularly. Even £5 per month can make a huge difference to us. We know it's hard out there for many of you, and now more than ever, but if you support what we do and you can afford to contribute, please do consider making a donation today. To make a donation, just go to spikes-online.com and hit the big red donate button in the top right corner. We cannot thank you enough. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me this week, as ever, we have Spiked's deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the week in coronavirus, Joe Biden and Tara Reid, and the latest free speech row at Oxford University. In the seventh week of the lockdown, the United Kingdom has now recorded Europe's highest number of deaths. Professor Neil Ferguson had flouted social distancing rules. The study, led by Imperial College, painted a worst-case picture of hundreds of thousands of deaths and a health service overwhelmed. This is a dirty tricks operation by this government. People like Dominic Cummings. It's been another extraordinary week in Britain, in what could potentially be our last week of full lockdown. The coronavirus death toll passed 30,000 this week, which could make Britain one of the most affected countries in Europe. In lighter news, one of the government's key scientific advisers, Professor Neil Ferguson, was caught breaking the lockdown to be with his polyamorous lover. Ferguson's grim predictions of hundreds of thousands of COVID deaths helped spur the UK and many other countries into the lockdown in the first place. Um, Ella, let's talk first about the Ferguson affair. Um, What are your thoughts on that? Well, it was the gossip we needed after weeks of miserable sameness in terms of the news, you know, daily updates of how many people had died. So a bit of scandal and intrigue with polyamorous lovers, as you say, and breaking the rules was, I quite enjoyed it. But obviously, I think what most people were thinking when they heard the news was, so? I mean, this is something, this is a judgment call that people are making daily. The idea that everyone is religiously sticking to the lockdown aside from any kind of sensible uh, judgment making is ridiculous. People are going out to see perhaps their polyamorous lovers, perhaps their mums, <laughs> and they're doing it sensibly. They're making uh, good calls in terms of knowing that they themselves don't have the virus. And you know all these things are normal and fine. And so everyone can relate to Ferguson. The problem is that he was such a bore about the stay-at-home rules. I mean, he's been one of the key figures who's sort of been tiresome in his 
promotion of the strictness of the lockdown. And so it's just this kind of delicious situation in which he's hoisted by his own petard. The thing that annoyed me most, though, was the reaction to it from certain commentators, because there was this really clear line that came out from some journalists saying, you know, wake up, sheeple. If you think this is the real story, I can't believe you're all being duped by this scandalous, gossipy headline about Ferguson when the death toll is at this number. And there was this real feeling of, you know, the idiot British public are all consumed by headlines about this one scientist and his mistake. And actually we're being hoodwinked into thinking that this is the news when the reality is the government is failing on PP or whatever it is. There's been articles in The Guardian talking about the fact that we're purient for wanting to know the identity of the mistress or the lover or however you want to moralise her. And actually it is quite important. And this should really have been a wake-up call for the government to realise that this is what most people are doing. This lockdown doesn't work. It, it's inhumane to ask people to stay away from the people they love or are sleeping with or are important members of their family for such a prolonged amount of time that people are eventually going to start breaking it because we can't live like this. But rather than doing that, there's been this kind of clamour to sacrifice Ferguson. I mean, Matt Hancock's response to it, basically saying that there should be an investigation was shameful and completely out of touch with reality. So, you know, we can laugh at Ferguson. I think it's a, a funny situation that's much needed in these dark times. But actually, it's quite a serious point to say that what he did really wasn't that bad. And it's what people are doing across the country. Tom, I just found that kind of when people were coming out and defending and going to bat for him, just it was remarkable the kind of arguments they were trying to make for themselves. You know, there was this kind of sense of, look, he's just a scientist. He's an advisor. We shouldn't be taking prurient stories um, from his personal life and using them to bring him down. Again, as Ella was suggesting, there was this kind of vaguely conspiratorial undertone as if the Daily Telegraph was enlisted to bring this story about to distract from us reaching over 30k deaths and all this kind of stuff. Really quite ridiculous. But I think the things it misses, and as Ella's just said, obviously is the hypocrisy point. You know, this is someone who advocated the lockdown. I mean, there's even suggestions in the reporting that his lover was at his flat whilst he was doing the Today programme, <laughs> urging people <laughs> to stick by the rules. So, you know, even just on the basis of this is a good story, of course you're going to run this. And of course he stood down of his own volition. But in a way, I'm down with that kind of argument as to say, you know, let's separate the expertise from the man. We're all human. We all make mistakes. We're in a remarkable situation. But at the same time, people aren't just taking him on the basis of what he's saying. People aren't just, you know, evaluating him on the basis of his work. He's just become this kind of figure of importance for the kind of pro-lockdown set who they don't want any knock to him whatsoever. What we need to go back to is focusing on, again, not in his private life, but on what it is that he's been saying, the role his modelling has played, and also some of the indications coming out from more dissenting experts that um, what he claimed to be true is not panning out to be true. You know, mm. despite all this talk about we should take him on the basis of his work, you know, there's been not a peep in the discussion pre this scandal about the fact that, you know, Ferguson study projected that Sweden were going to pay for their lack of lockdown with 40,000 COVID deaths. Last time I checked, it's only just over 3,000. And that was supposed to be up to the 1st of May that those were supposed to come in. There's been not a word about his, you know, his, his track record, you know, 2005 saying 200 million people would be killed by bird flu. In the end, it was 282 people worldwide between 
2003 and 2009. So there's just been zero discussion of this man's ideas, yeah. this man's claims and this man's advice so far. It's just purely that he's taken on this kind of strange role as this kind of figurehead in the culture war over the lockdown. So these kind of desperate attempts at the moment to present him as like Galileo being felled by the, <laughs> the crazed newspapers. So I think that, you know, we do need to get back to a position where we are talking about the substance, but that's precisely what they've refused to do with in terms of his advice so far anyway. One of the most frustrating and annoying things that Ferguson's defenders will say is that he saved lives. You know, his alarmism, as, as we would call it, pushed us into lockdown. But actually, his really stark predictions did the opposite, I would say. You know, acting on some of those fears has cost lives unnecessarily. So the fear that the NHS would face a kind of unprecedented surge and would be overrun has led them to cancel all kinds of other necessary surgeries to clear hospitals of, you know, cancer patients. The amount of, you know, heart attacks that have been dealt with has plummeted. The amount of diseases that are not going to be checked for that could have real long-term consequences is enormous. And it also and this is one of the most you know significant and underappreciated aspects of of the UK's crisis it also caused the nhs to rely on care homes as a way of reducing the toll on hospitals and you know the government's advice is it's absolutely extraordinary to read they were literally advising the nhs to discharge coronavirus patients to care homes and there was no requirement that they would have a negative test for COVID-19. There's all kinds of evidence now that shows that people who, you know, were sick, people who were infectious were sent out of hospitals into care homes. And care homes is now, you know, the vast majority of the of current deaths are, are happening. And, and at the same time, of course, you know, the rest of us, healthy, young, fit, <laughs> relatively, are forced to stay indoors. And, and you know, people are wasting away uh, doing that. The sanctification of people like Neil Ferguson is really frustrating because I think that without sounding conspiratorial, there's a bit of a nervous feeling among certain sectors, among journalists, among scientists and researchers like Neil Ferguson and politicians that they've collectively fucked up, basically. And the way that they've screwed up is by giving in to the panic at the start of this virus. So I think most of us understand now that we would have done better if we had a much more focused approach that didn't close schools, that didn't as you say, Fraser, lock up every young, fit, not at risk person, but instead funneled resources into places where they were needed, like care homes, mm. like providing for people who had these underlying health conditions that make them more at risk. Instead, because of pressure from people like Neil Ferguson, because of pressure from a kind of shrieking media set, Boris Johnson, who initially, I remember us saying in this podcast, initially was rather impressive in terms of his resolve to maintain liberty and freedom and a reasoned approach to this, gave in to the panic and basically shut down society. And as you say, a result is, you know, on the extreme end, people dying because they're not getting the treatment that they need from heart attacks or otherwise. And on the less extreme but still important end, you know, misery mm. for most people's lives, being cooped up at home or working jobs that were crap in healthy times and now treated even worse and worked longer hours during this virus. So the situation is bad. And I think that the response to the Neil Ferguson scandal has been telling because there's been so much praise for him. Because I think that 
journalists and his his colleagues are feeling nervous about the period after coronavirus, if it ever comes, which will be who is to blame for all of this and questions about why we got here. And it will be individuals like him who promoted this kind of culture of fear around coronavirus that was not only unnecessary, but actually unhelpful to getting us out of it. I think they're going to start to sweat because I think most of us are realising that they were wrong. That question about the the death rate is really important. And it's not as if we shouldn't discuss this. And it's not as if we shouldn't look at where we've been going wrong. You know, the guidance on care homes is a key example. I think the problem is because there is this incredibly simplistic blame game going on, which basically just is on the part of many commentators who just want to pile up as many bodies at the door of the Conservative Party as possible. And in some even more extreme cases, claim this is actually all motivated by Brexit and the forces that unleashed, as you as you saw in The Observer last week in a Nick Cohen's column. When you simplify things like that so much, you miss the detail, you miss clear-cut issues which should have been addressed, and there's just no fundamental understanding or even recognition of the fact that this was a new virus. It basically caught all of Western Europe napping. No one was prepared for it. There are things that we need to look at. There are problems with the scientific advice as well as the political action. And I think the thing is, it's not as if anyone should be blasé about the rate of deaths. It's not as if anyone should step back from making criticisms of government and the advice that they got. It's just this ridiculously simplistic argument which seems to revolve purely around why didn't Boris Johnson lock down earlier mm. seems to miss so much of the complexity and seems to miss um, so much of the other blame which needs to be apportioned not only in relation to COVID-19 deaths but also the kinds of deaths that we've been seeing and we're going to see more of in relation to the policies that were taken up in an attempt to bring down those COVID-19 deaths. You're listening to the Spike podcast. Spike has no subscriptions and no paywalls. All of our content is free. We rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spike, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. If you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spike a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com. Joe Biden, the presumptive Democratic presidential nominee, has been under enormous pressure to respond to allegations of sexual assault from a former aide. Tara Reid alleged that Biden pinned her up against the wall and stuck his hand up her skirt back in 1993. Last week, in his first interview on the subject, Biden unequivocally denied Reid's claims. It never happened, he said. Prominent Democrats have stood by Biden, while much of the media have given him a relatively easy ride. Joining us down the line for this section is Sean Collins, Spiked's US correspondent. Sean, is there a double standard here? I mean, what, whatever happened to the Me Too movement and the injunction to believe all women? Yes, Fraser, I definitely think there's a double standard here. It's especially because of who Joe Biden is and his role in contributing to Me Too, or you know, you might sort of like the excesses or overzealousness of the Me Too movement, I would say that few politicians have done more to undermine the kind of due process and presumption of innocence, which Biden right now is is hoping people will give him, you know, the benefit of the doubt. And that's mainly through his support and promotion when he was vice president in the Obama administration for new rules on campuses for treating sexual harassment and sexual violence and really establishing 
these sort of what people call kangaroo courts on these campuses, which really, you know, some people dismiss as trivial, but it isn't at all. I mean, basically, people, mostly young men accused, not a chance to defend themselves, been expelled on, you know, the reputation damage, not able to go to other universities or get a job because it's on their record. And I think that basically set the tone going forward. And in fact, Biden himself said he wanted these changes on colleges to have a broader impact on the culture. Ella, your thoughts? The thing about Tara Reid's accusation is that it's it's incredibly serious. I mean, he didn't just put his hand up her skirt. The phrase that's used is digitally penetrate, which means quite a serious physical intervention onto her person, if I can put it that way. Mm. And so you would expect this to be taken as seriously, if not more seriously, than the whole I want to grab her by the pussy scandal of Donald Trump because this individual actually alleges that Joe Biden physically assaulted her. But the reason the picture is blurry is because Reid herself is seems to be sort of increasingly confused about whether she did or did not write a report, whether she did or did not use the word sexual harassment. She says that she knows that she definitely did use the words uncomfortable and retaliation, but perhaps not harassment. So it's a classic Me Too case, actually, because it's a historic allegation from 1993. It's Sounds like it could be quite serious, but all the evidence is blurry at best. And it's a kind of comes down to a he said, she said. The point that Sean makes about it being Biden who's at the centre of this is really quite important because you've had, as I wrote a number of weeks ago in a spiked column, lots of the very high profile hashtag MeToo campaigners mm. basically defending Biden Alyssa Milano, who infamously sent the first tweet to kick off the hashtag MeToo movement, kind of came out and said, well, I don't want to throw Biden under a bus over this because his politics are too important because she hates Trump too much. And as Sean says, it's made even more complicated by the fact that Biden is ridiculous in his fear-mongering around campus sexual assault. I mean, there was a time when he was talking about a rape on campus and frat boys drinking alcohol. And he said, drunk sex is rape, is rape, is rape. And you know, it's mm-hmm. anyone who's ever had sex after a few drinks knows that that's absolutely insane thing to say. But the important point to take from this is a difficult one to make from my point of view, which is that if a woman experiences something like this, and for whatever reason decides that she can't come forward or won't come forward, then it's very hard to hold up those historic allegations when you have no evidence. And the cruel fact is, it shouldn't be held against Biden if there is no evidence that he did this. And you cannot just go on the basis of a story that sounds pretty bad. The problem is, this is exactly what Biden is advocating for to happen on campuses, which is that the preponderance of evidence procedure, that if it sounds like someone probably did assault someone, then that's good enough to tar them for life. And so he can't advocate for one rule for others and then pretend like it doesn't apply to him. Tom? 
Well, I think just contrasting it to the Kavanaugh circus, and it was a circus, you know, when that allegation made by Christine Blasey Ford against the um, new Supreme Court nominee, it's just remarkable the double standards are on display in the discussion of it from the democratic media. You know, obviously there's Biden himself. There's a particular quote that's haunting him where he said in relation to Blasey Ford's accusations that if someone's going to come out into the kind of glare of the spotlight on the national stage, you should begin from the position of believing that the essence of what she's saying is true and obviously not applying that in this case saying point blank that it never happened. But, you know, even at the time, any kind of discussion of Blasey Ford's accusations, you know, any kind of questioning of why did it take her so long to come forward? Why are there these gaps in her story, gaps in her memory? All of this was treated straightforwardly by the kind of mainstream democratic media as um, ugly, victim-blaming, misogynistic. And yet this time around, they're engaging in precisely the same thing. The thing that it's quite clear is that, you know, a lot of Democrats are waking up to the fact that creating this situation whereby someone's future, including people in the public eye, just lives or dies on the basis of unproven allegations alone is obviously a recipe for tyranny on the one hand, but also just the complete debasement of of public life. You know, if that becomes the currency, it's going to lead you into a pretty dangerous situation. But I guess the question then is, and, and Sean raises this in his article this week, is are they actually waking up to it? You know, I think on one hand, you could almost be more forgiving if it ever seemed <laughs> like for a lot of them, believe all women which is this is impossible thing to do in a just society, was ever their real conviction. I'm sure it was for some, but at the same time, I think the swiftness with which you've seen this kind of about turn um, in their thinking, I think points to how nakedly partisan a lot of that stuff was in relation to Kavanaugh, in relation to Trump, that up to this point, a lot of this was about raging against Trump, about trying to stop the Supreme Court nominee, about waging this kind of culture war with the right over the subjects of campus kangaroo courts. And that, you know, a lot of the motivation was about that rather than about this kind of firm conviction that any of them might have had that this was actually about believable women. Now, obviously, the Al Franken thing is probably a bit of a bump in the road. The Democratic senator who was kind of thrown under the bus in relation to misconduct allegations. But, you know, I think that was that was a price they could have easily paid. Whereas Biden, you know, the great hope to beat Trump as well as for the kind of more centre of the party, the guy who stopped Bernie Sanders, he's too big to fail. And so those principles allegedly have gone completely out the window. So it does it does just feel like it's revealed how nakedly partisan a lot of this stuff was in the first place. Sean, is that your kind of take as well. Yeah, I mean I think what's important for listeners to understand is that this is really a live issue. You know, right now it's a current issue because you know, you can think well the allegation was from 27 years ago and a lot of this campus stuff has, you know, been brought in, but actually Wednesday of this week after my article in Spike was published, the education secretary Betsy DeVos published a final rule which basically overturns the Obama administration rules and brings in, you know, a fairer process on campus. And amazingly, Joe Biden, later that day, put out a statement saying he's utterly opposed to the changes in the rules. It's really like head turning, right? You know, it's like a couple of days ago, Nancy Pelosi, head of the Democrats in the House, says Joe Biden deserves due process. Yesterday, you know, yesterday when we're recording, this is what she came out and said, we have to, you know, overturn these rules that Betsy DeVos is bringing in, rules that actually bring in due process. So it, it, it's crazy. You know, in fact, Biden is actually not just looking to go back to the Obama rules. He actually wants to put in even tougher, more draconian penalties against accused students on campus, which is just just crazed. Ella, your final thoughts. I mean, what does all this mean for kind of due process and things like that? When I was looking into the DeVos's uh, statement, the sort of most remarkable thing was that it 
it isn't this giant assault on <laughs> Title IX. I'd like it to go much further. I mean, the statement talks about including survivors' opinion and how the university should deal with Title IX investigations, which is is exactly the problem with all of this, that it's not about a serious and objective commitment to seeking justice for those who have been wronged on campus. It's about doing the right thing, in quote marks, for survivors and victims, which inevitably means that it isn't fair. And basically, my point of view is that Title IX should have stuck to the 37-word statement it originally was in the 70s, which was about sex discrimination, basically not allowing universities to refuse to give women sports scholarships. Instead, now it's turned into this means through which women students, more often than not, are encouraged to seek protection from their administrations. I mean, the fact is, if you think that someone has abused you and assaulted you, getting them kicked off their course is going to do nothing. I mean, if you're actually serious about bringing that person to justice, you need to call the police. And in what world is a university administrator who spends 80% of their time dealing with fees questions qualified to deal with an assault investigation. The whole mm. thing is completely warped. And it's also a really bad faith discussion because this isn't about seeking justice for sexual harassment. It's about jumping on to the political bandwagon of sexual harassment on campus, which has turned into a farce. It's based on bad data, these stats that say that one in four women will have experienced unwanted conduct in university. If you haven't experienced unwanted conduct at university, you need to get out more because that's part of the experience. So (laughs) what you'd hope is that university students in America and in the UK, where we're dealing with this kind of issue at the moment too, would stand up for their right to not be protected and cosseted by university administrations a bit like the 60s and 70s generation did. It remains to be seen if they're going to be sensible about this divorce statement or not. Finally, Sean, do you think this is going to have any bearing on the campaign on the 2020 election? I, th- I think it will. I, you know, there's a long way till November and this is not necessarily the number one issue. But, you know, already Biden's a shaky candidate. Everyone talks about his, you know, his gibberish in his senior moments. And, you know, he's he leads right now in the polls uh, in some swing states, but it's a small lead. And uh, this just reinforces the image that he's uh, an unstable candidate. And, you know, it's I don't think it's going to help him at all. You're listening to The Spiked Podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher and more. And if your provider allows you to, why not give us a rating and a review while you're there? It really helps new listeners find the show. Oxford University's Student Union passed a motion last week condemning hateful material in its mandatory teaching materials. The motion, named the Academic Hate Speech Motion, also sought to establish new university hate speech policy to ban incitement of hatred on the grounds of gender identity, disability and socioeconomic status. But the university itself has pushed back. It referred journalists to its existing free speech policy, which declares free speech to be the lifeblood of the university. Tom, do you want to tell us a bit about this row? Yeah, so in some respects, it was a quite standard kind of skirmish you see on campus in relation to freedom of speech. You know, you had the Oxford Student Council passing this motion, 
demanding all of the policies that you've already just outlined in relation to hateful material. They also wanted to lobby for trigger warnings to be put on um, course materials, which could potentially upset the aforementioned list of groups. Also, just allowing um, students from certain groups to opt out of particular exams if they contain materials that might be upsetting to them and again it kind of especially in the middle of coronavirus when oxford university and every university is closed you know the kind of cheap point is that it's almost like they want to impoverish their education further by <laughs> limiting what it is that they're actually allowed to um, discuss but i thought the one thing that was interesting was the kind of strength of the pushback from oxford now this is something that they've been trying to stake out a bit more of a position on the vc in particular over the past couple of years but that is certainly an encouraging sign is that you are seeing more and more institutions particularly those at the kind of top being much more assertive because up until this point the approach was always that these students might be wrong but they've got right on their side or they will be perceived to have right on their side therefore you need to tiptoe around them a little bit so seeing a kind of slightly more full-throated defence of free speech was was good. I think one thing that that story actually really brought home, though, was how it's an argument that we've made a lot of times, but it's worth restating, is that these censorious students like to think that they're all about challenging prejudice, which is, you know, basically the justification for all forms of censorship that they pursue most of the time. And yet it's so incredibly counterproductive. And this is one thing that one of the um, professors who was teaching a medical law and ethics course which was singled out in this motion because it supposedly had anti-disabled readings in it. He just made the point that you can't pretend that these attitudes don't exist. You study them in the in the case of these courses purely so that you understand the arguments and you know how to challenge them. And this is a point that I think needs to be made again and again, is the fact that despite the fact all of this censorship is presented as some kind of battle with bigotry, the only consequence of it is that you're going to be less capable of recognizing understanding and understanding how to challenge that bigotry when you encounter it and if you are on a medical ethics course or whatever else you're going to turn out a lot of students who are underqualified in many respects at doing that uh, ella well the fascinating thing about this is that the particular texts and the readings that was outlined as being discriminatory as tom says in this medical law and ethics course was to do with ableist ideas in relation to disabled children and this is it's a live issue in politics at the moment, the discussion of whether or not, for example, tests while women are pregnant should be allowed to test for Down syndrome and whether women should be allowed to have abortions on the basis of this. So this is a live political issue, a debate that's happening where, from my point of view, mad pro-lifers on one side are arguing that if you are protesting or pro-abortion rights, then you are ableist. And <laughs> then there's pro-choice people on the other side. So it's crucial it's crucial that students understand these arguments uh, if we want to have a progressive society moving forward. And this is the irony always at the heart of these free speech debates is that the people who are precisely saying they're protecting a progressive society and arguing for more liberal, safe spaces on campus are actually doing the opposite because by not understanding the other side of the argument, you're completely ill-equipped to actually argue for change in the world. So it's just ridiculous, this whole situation. But it's also important to remember that this isn't just happening on university campuses. And when I was reading about this story, I was reminded of this ridiculous Twitter spat that's happened over the last week over who has what books on their bookshelf <laughs> started off between well, someone brought that up. started off between Owen Jones and Sarah Vine accusing her and Michael Gove of having or slating her and Michael Gove for having a David Irving book on their bookshelf and then this whole debate ensued of you know not only what is the right and wrong books to have on your bookshelf when you're on television but should you be able to read books that are in many cases despicable and wrong the important point is we do have a very warped view of 
free speech on campus and elsewhere because universities do not have free reign to allow their students to think and read anything. There are already policies in place. The work that Spike used to do in its free speech university rankings revealed that there's a huge problem with free speech on university campuses and outside. I mean, the government support to some people raised the prevent policy, which stops Muslim students from reading and hearing certain views for fear that they might become radicalised. So this is a minefield and the only clear path is to argue for an unfettered defence of freedom of speech with no ifs, no buts. And that's not very fashionable at the moment because you get told that you're discriminating against this list that they give of you know, trans and non-binary and working class disabled women. I mean, I don't know why women's always thrown in there as if we're a minority, but in actual fact, what it's doing is stopping students from gaining the tools mentally um, and intellectually to be able to fight for a better world. Ella, you brought up the free speech university rankings and it's reminded me of the fact that often it was the top universities that would have the worst kind of red rankings, you know, in terms of free speech when we looked at those. And, and you know, people might be surprised to think that supposedly the kind of bastions of British intellectualism, Oxford and Cambridge and places like that are so censorious. But, you know, really they're the places that are driving the kind of um, attack on freedom of speech in many ways. And and the great irony is often it's the most kind of comfortably off students. And let's be honest, there's a substantial number of these students who are privately educated, far more so than most other universities. Often it's the most comfortable students who are going out of the way to say that they're essentially victimised and not just victimised in general, but victimised by speech, by words, by ideas, you know, in a, in a way that someone who was really a victim of circumstances probably uh, wouldn't be mm. so upset about speech. Now, I think the other thing to take into account as well is the fact that whilst it's often the students who we see being at the forefront and making these demands, as Ella was saying, it's a far more complicated picture. And universities in particular have a lot to answer for, for setting the tone for a lot of this stuff. I mean, it was interesting that the policy was effectively demanding an expansion of existing university policy in hate speech. Now, that policy, as far as I can tell, was based in the hate speech restrictions in law, but it tells you a little bit about where they're getting their ideas from, not from nowhere. Um, Do they think the idea that words wound to such an extent they need to be cleansed from campus life? And also, you know, when we, again, were doing the university rankings, there was a couple of universities, St Andrews, Sussex, Cardiff, in the last year that we did it in 2018, who had committed themselves to cleansing transphobic material from the curriculum which is an almost identical demand to what these students came up with. So I think it's um, really important that while, as you say, Fraser, there is a kind of cultural problem amongst certain students, particularly at elite universities who have this bizarre self-victimisation, despite the fact often most of them have barely encountered any adversity in their life, full stop. But also these students are getting their ideas from somewhere. And it's from the fact that we live in a society with laws, with institutions, and even with universities that mandate restrictions on speech in the first place, often for very similar, though less extreme justifications than you hear from students at Oxford at the minute. You've been listening to The Spiked Podcast. For more Spike content, don't forget to keep visiting us at spiked-online.com, where you can also make a donation or treat yourself to something from our shop.